Better agriculture is recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri, Woi, Wurrung and Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation and edited on the lands of the Ghana people. We pay our respects to all Elders past and present. You're listening to a Bayer podcast. Better Agriculture takes listeners behind the scenes of the world's largest agricultural research and development program. Find out what's new and next in Australian agriculture with the Bayer Crop Science team. It's a really big problem for Australia and uh, it's, it's sort of one of our challenges here is to come up with new innovation to help manage herbicide-resistant weeds. You know, if we go back 10, 15 years ago, especially in Western Australia, some of the growers are contemplating dropping out of cropping because they just could not manage their weed loads. And it's not just individual plants, those plants are now resistant to several types of, of herbicides. It's a race to really innovate as quickly as you can to try and keep ahead of the curve as far as managing weeds. Hello and welcome to the Better Agriculture podcast. My name is Ed Gannon. In this episode, we're looking at weed management, which is one of the most important issues in Australian agriculture. And joining me today is Ken Young, who's the Senior Manager Biosecurity and Regulation at the Grains Research and Development Corporation. Welcome, Ken. Thanks, Ed. And Mike Rouch, who is the Head of Herbicide Development and Weed Management at Bayer Crop Science. Welcome, Mike. G'day, Ed. So, Ken, tell us a little bit about your role at GRDC. Well, GRDC is a corporation established by by legislation and it's there for research and development. So growers pay a levy and that levy is matched to a certain extent by the federal government and it differs depending on which rural development corporation you're associated with. So what our role is to look at where the gaps are in R&D and invest in that on behalf of the Australian grain grower but also on behalf of the Australian government. And your role specific, what are you looking at? My role is, is it covers biosecurity um, and also chemical regulation, but prior to that, it was in charge of all the crop protection. So it sort of covered all any of those things about biotic threats to the Australian grains industry. So, and in biosecurity, we take biosecurity as not just something on the external to Australia. Biosecurity is something that starts inside your paddock that you don't want that weed to spread or that disease to spread, you start to look at it inside your paddock and then it might be you know, stopping things moving between paddocks, between farms, between regions and then between uh, jurisdictions like states. But there's also trying to stop new pests coming into Australia. It also has an important part to play in ensuring we've got market access overseas. So we can show that we are disease-free or pest-free and the markets will then accept our grain. So, Mike, what's your role? Tell us a bit about what you do. Yeah, look, just simply uh, my responsibility is the development of new herbicides for Bayer in Australia and New Zealand. Um, I started off doing field trials in southern New South Wales and I I worked there for about 30 years and uh, I wasn't going to stay that long, but, you know, these things happen. And, uh, yeah, thoroughly enjoyed that role. And then about seven years ago, decided to move into this uh, management role down here in Melbourne. And, uh, yeah, been... um, Still on the learning curve, I think, <laughs> for that. Like us all. Ken, let, let's get into weeds. Start with the basics. What's the definition of a weed? The simplest definition, which you know, the experts will debate over, is just it's a plant out of place. It's a plant where you don't want it. 
So for the grains industry, it's any plant that is going to take away yield of the crop that you've put in the ground. Uh, or yield and profit, because sometimes the weed may not take much yield, but it can cause contamination um, and therefore stop the marketing of that product. So that also is a weed. And, and a weed can be a, a native plant? It doesn't have it to be an inter, be. In, 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 it, introduced it can, species? It can be a native plant, but most of our weeds have come across from Europe, uh, back in early European settlement. Um, yes, we have got some weeds from South Africa, South America, um, a few, in, especially up the north, uh, a few from Asia, but predominantly our, in a, most of our grain belt, they are European weeds. And so, Mike, what is the cost of weeds to Australia, or, or farming, but Australia in general as well? Yeah, I think uh, for this one, I'm actually going to refer to a GIDC publication <laughs> that probably can had something to do with. But uh, I think it was estimated that uh, weeds cost Australian farmers, Australian grain growers, about $3.3 billion a year. And uh, Australia, it's worth noting that we've probably got the second highest number of resistant weeds, resistant to herbicides, that is, in the world, sitting just behind the US. So it's a, it's a really big problem. For Australia, and uh, it's it's sort of one of our challenges here is to come up with new innovation to help manage uh, herbicide-resistant weeds. That's a really interesting point. Why have we got the second most resistant weeds in the world? Well, I think we've had a strong reliance on herbicides, and I think Australian farmers have been um, very good at working out how to apply herbicides to get the maximum uh, efficacy out of them and when you get a very high rate of efficacy you get, it's a, a higher selection pressure and so we've had this strong reliance on herbicides and w- because of our soil types we have uh, we you know have minimum tillage and we've adopted minimum tillage be- largely because of the herbicides and that has actually put more pressure on the selection process for selecting herbicide resistant weed populations so can where are we at in the fight against weeds? I suppose it's a pretty big question, that one, but can you sort of summarise that? Ed, the fight against weeds is a continual battle. Are we winning? Uh, some people are, yes. You know, if we go back 10, 15 years ago, um, especially in Western Australia, some of the growers are contemplating dropping out of cropping because they just could not manage their weed loads. And it's been a combination of... of herbicides, some cultural practices and also some mechanical um, management, so things called harvest weed seed control, have been able to bring those weed populations down and the weed seed bank down to lowers where they can get back into cropping and are extremely successful in cropping again. And you are at a point now where it's, it's getting harder and harder to control the weed issue? As Mike said, there's a range of herbicide-resistant weeds. Now, our, our top weed in, in the cropping zones is a thing called annual ryegrass. Now, it has a, a great genetic diversity in its population in Australia, partly because it was sown as a pasture grass back in the wheat-sheep days. So the population diversity across Australia is massive, which then helps, when you get selection pressure, to pick up the resistant weeds. So it's underlying resistance genetics is there to be just selected from so going on from that basis it's it is always there and 
we're getting weeds which have got multiple resistance. So initially it might have been to things like the Group A herbicides, which were grass-selective herbicides, and then it went into our pre-emergent, well, were called Group Bs. We've just changed the classification system, and I'm going to struggle. <laughs> uh, but most growers will know as Group Bs, things like your gleans um, and your allies. So there was resistance to those. And then our major herbicide that we use for knockdown, glyphosate, um, but even paracot and dicot, um, have also started getting resistance. And it's not just individual plants. Those plants are now resistant to several types of, of herbicides. So if you don't watch that, they will explode on you. Um, that's why things like this thing, thing we've talked about, the physical management of harvest weed seed control in this situation is extremely important because those weeds that are staying around to the end of the crop are more likely to be resistant and carrying resistance genes or are fully resistant and they'll seeding and the old adage one year seeding, seven years weeding is extremely true. So the issue of resistance, it's a huge issue for Bayer. It must really drive Bayer in, in its strategies and what it does. Can you explain a bit about that? That's a good point, Ed. It, it really is a focus for Bayer. And uh, you know, Ken mentioned a couple of groups of chemistry there. And unfortunately, we, uh, we've had chemistry that we've had to stop developing and that, that's in those groups just so that we can focus on chemistry that's still effective. And, uh, I mean, it is a, it's a race to really innovate as quickly as you can to try and keep ahead of the, the, the curve as far as managing uh, weeds. I think the problem is that herbicides just have been so effective and so cost-efficient, really, uh, in the past, and so they've been relied on a lot. And one thing resistance has brought to the attention of anyone who's uh, in, in broadacre cropping, in fact, any cropping, is how important it is to use an integrated approach um, to managing weeds and not have not solely rely on herbicides. Herbicides are very, still a very important part of that um, process, but um, wherever you can, and Ken mentioned um, destruction of uh, weed seeds post-harvest or at harvest, uh, and that is you know anything like that, anything you can do, and any non-chemical method that you can integrate into that whole weed control program is going to help you uh, prolong the life of the herbicide mode of action and, uh, yeah, and, and just you know, continue to be able to farm effectively. You mentioned the non-herbicide methods. Is there anything that's happening new or being developed in that sort of world at the moment that farmers perhaps are going to hear about or that's just emerging at the moment? In non, non-chemical methods, there is, there's a range of options the one that growers probably won't jump onto unless they really, really have to is tillage. So the Australian Grain Belt has adopted minimum zero-till stubbage retention systems because it's the best way of retaining moisture over summer and maintaining moisture and having that moisture available to go into your crop. So tillage is not what we want to go back to and most growers don't want to go back to. So you're then looking at other things. As I said, we talked with this harvest weed seed control, which is basically having those seeds at the end at crop to destroy. But there's cultural things in agri- agronomy, looking at your row spacing and your plant density, so there's actually better competition. And there's been work about having competitive crops and more competitive crops bred to compete against the weeds. Growers would have heard about long coleoptile weeds. Now they're using that for two purposes. One is to chase moisture deep, but again, some of those, those varieties that are with the long coleoptiles tend to be a little bit more aggressive against the weeds. When we get into other types of non-chemical, we are getting into things which 
are still very much in the development phase. They're not, they're not really R&D. They've probably gone beyond R&D. Things like there is some work being done on electrocution. There is work at looking at lasers. There has been work in the past and on microwaves. Now, the biggest issue with all of these is the eventual cost. Overseas, they've used flaming. There's also foam and hot water. So all these things have been looked at. Now, how useful they are within the Australian context is we're looking at. And the electrocution, there's some bit of work happening in Western Australia at the moment to see whether it could be adapted. It's more likely still to go into the high-end crops, the perennial crops, the horticultural crops, before the cost will be able to come into a grain crop or even to a cotton crop. So while there's some non-chemical methods being looked at and being investigated to see, well, could they ever apply to grain cropping? was still a long way from them being available to a grower. I suppose there's some methods that are quite common now that 20 years ago we probably thought, well, that's a bit way out there. Yeah. We're not discounting them. We haven't written them off. But it's understanding the underlying economics of them and saying, OK, what that's was, and then looking, OK, what's their base cost? You know, if they can reduce their costs down in the machinery and the time, you know, things like hot water weeders, you know, could be really good, except the amount of water they use, you know, the time of people having to go and fill up, with, you know, they're flat out doing that with a sprayer, keeping the sprayer up with water, let alone putting something like a hot water weeder out. So there's some practicalities about how these fit as well as the economics. Um, but yeah, we're not writing those out. We're looking at them to see where they go in. So the other thing is, it's going to be with herbicides, but it's also going to fit some of these other non-chemical methods, is site-specific management of weeds. So while we use what we call a knockdown or a pre-crop management of, of our weeds and our stubble before going in, and we'll probably still have to do that as, as one big broad acre application, when we get into the crop and the crop's starting to grow, we can start to identify weeds early and just have the application on a weed-by-weed -weed basis. Now, we're still looking at that for chemistry, but that may make things like electrocution or weeding where you can come, and we've done some work of um, during the fallow in this situation where instead of using, well, we've identified the weed and initially it was putting a, a herbicide on it, but we've also changed that and had a site-specific tillage implement come in and take that weed out. So instead of tilling the whole paddock, you're only tilling a small part of it. On the issue of herbicide, um, Mike, farmers looking at what they need and, and what works best, what, what are sort of the factors are they going through in their mind when they're making decisions about that sort of thing? Yeah, look, I think they're all economic decisions, uh, what a farmer does in a paddock, but I think the place for of herbicide resistance and manage, managing herbicide resistance is really about what options the farmer has in that paddock. So I think typically a farmer will look at what weeds are in the paddock and, and if those weeds are resistant to different modes of action and that will tell him what options he has for herbicide groups and based on that he might decide that it suits a certain crop or another another crop. But I think, as Ken has said, that it's all about, you know, they've got to make money and it's getting the best return for their investment in, in those particular paddocks. And so it's an economic decision but herbicide resistance plays a big part in that because it, it tells them what options they've got um, in, within that particular paddock. And it is a paddock-by-paddock paddock basis, and I'm sure there are some farmers that have you know, paddocks that have been a, a lot of trouble for them and that they give a lot of thought and attention to and other paddocks that are fairly clean from weeds and they, um, they treat them differently. 
Yeah, but there's a lot of people nodding in agreement um, with that notion. There's uh, Every farm seems to have a, a problem paddock, doesn't it? I want to move to the Herbicide Innovation Partnership, which is between Bayer and GRDC. An explanation of what it is, uh, what it's done and probably what it's going to do. Who wants to kick that one off? So it gets back to this issue of having resistant weeds and the effort in discovery of new herbicide mode of actions was on a downward trend. Even the investments in the major multinational companies like Bayer and Syngenta were decreasing and it was around the dominance of one chemical, which happened to be glyphosate, because it was such a useful bit of chemistry. And so innovation, there was just no room for innovation. But when weeds started to get resistant to it, and yes, Australia was one of the leaders in this, but America's now taken over us. And you know, once they started you know, having this dominance uh, on having major issues with resistant weeds, it indicated we were not keeping up in the discovery and we needed some effort to put in it. Now, for Australia specifically, it was we looked at what products were coming to Australia and herbicides, and our growers were at least two years, if not up to five, in some cases, 10 or 15 years behind a registration package coming to Australia than our competitors in North America and Europe. And yes, we've got to realise Australia is only 2 to 3% of the wheat market and the herbicide market. So that alongside, and again with Europe, with their regulatory process, which is a, a hazard-based regulatory process, which took a lot of chemistry out of the market. So we had regulatory pressures on existing chemistry. We had weed pressures overcoming existing chemistry. So the amount of active chemicals, or amount of tools the grower had, was getting more and more limited. Then we looked at what the availability is relative to our competitors over Australia, Overseas and Australia was still further behind. So our investment was to say, well, we need some more effort done in discovery and help the people doing that work, and particularly to have that chemistry come to Australia. And Bayer was selected predominantly because of their expertise and the, the history of working, particularly in the small seeded wheats, the cereals. They also have a reasonable amount of work in what we call a safener. So it gave them some dominance in getting a chemistry in cereals which would come to Australia. The other big platform is our Australian weeds were put into their early screenings and also the, the, the chemistry, when it first went into the field, came to Australia. So the development teams in Australia then got to see this chemistry six years before they normally would have seen it. So they can then see how it fitted into the Australian context and be able to put business cases to the people in, back in, in the headquarters to say, right, this molecule really suits us. We need to help develop it. So for Bayer, that's an important issue is that delay because you, you are a big company and you are a, a, a post of it in Australia. So there are things happening that do take time to get here. Does this partnership help with that from Bayer's point of view? Oh, for sure. I mean, you know, Bayer's a research and development company and we totally rely on innovation. If we can't bring innovation, then that's our business, really. And that's, what, that's why we went into HIP, and really is because we could see, as Ken pointed out, that uh, innovation just wasn't coming fast enough uh, for Australian farmers. It's a race, really, with, with weeds and uh, we, we weren't getting new chemistry quickly enough, new modes of action. 
And that's what HIP has really given us. It's, it's really about accelerating the rate of innovation and, and bringing those new modes of action and testing them, uh, not just in glass houses in Germany like, like we used to do, but bring them out to Australia um, in their first year, the first year out of the glass house. They're now coming into, into our plots in Australia where we can look at them on Australian weeds, under Australian conditions, on Australian crops. And, um, you know, it, it's, uh, you can't, it's hard to replicate that, that anywhere else. And it also puts us um, closer to where the decisions are made and we can have a bigger influence on, on what chemistry you know, is focused on, on by Bayer. So, uh, yeah, I think it's a really good thing. And it's been, on a personal level, it's been great to be able to see things that are brand new uh, and pick up, you know, being out in the paddock and, and someone points out that this is a new mode of action and these symptoms are different to anything you've seen before. And you've got to think about things a bit differently. And, and uh, you know, that's, that's a really exciting thing to see, actually. So the, the partnership's been going since 2015 and it's just been extended to 2025, my understanding. You know, re- research takes a long time, probably seven to ten years from, if not longer. We must remember, when we, again, back in 2015 when this started, there'd be no new modes of action discovered for 30 years. The last one was in 1980. So for 30 years, Bayer, Syngenta, BASF, had still had a weed discovery units. Sure, they'd reduced in size because of the dominance of things like glyphosate, but they'd still been trying to find something for 30 years. So that was also you know, why we invested, is to put some extra effort in that discovery. And as you said, Ed, to get something onto the market, you know, it's going to take 17, 15 to 17 years. So we're only seven years in. Yeah, it is. It's a long process when you put it like that, I hope. I'm around to see <laughs> to see one of these come through. But has Bayer found new interesting things? Yes, they have. Have some of them been able to get to market? We're still well down the track. They're really early phases. And, and people would have heard or may have heard of this thing called field to the plate type legislation that's happening in, in Europe, which is putting another regulatory hurdle over things. So for a molecule to get through the regulatory process is even harder now than it was when by, when the HIP started. And obviously even before HIP, it, was, it you know, got tightened up. So to get something through right through to a commercial product is becoming harder. Have we, you know, well, I don't have to leave it to Bayer, but is this something we can jump up and down and say, no, this is, this is a, a molecule which we know is going to hit the market in 2025 or well, 2027, sorry. Um, at this point in time, no, we can't say that. I'd just like to add, look, they're, they're, you're trying to, I think what you're asking is how do we measure the success so far? And I think you can say that there are several candidates that we have been given to test in Australia that we would not have had without HIP. So, and it's a long process, but we're, we're at that start of the process. And um, yeah, I, I think that um, it, as a measure of success, I think it has been successful in identifying those, those new products. Some of them are new modes of action um, that we are starting in the early phases of development for. And uh, it's a long process and we'll see how we go. I would say that the activity that HEP has generated and the, the tension it's brought to Australia, I think has assisted 
some of Bayer's competitors in Australia to grab molecules, which they're not new modes of action, but to bring them to Australia. That's helped, you know, FMC, BASF, Syngenta to bring some molecules um, faster to Australia than perhaps if HIP wasn't there, may not have come as quickly. I can't sign on a dotted line and say that is it, but that's from ALB's observation. It appears that it has refocused of that Australian market is quite a, a, a reasonable market for, for herbicides. Yeah, so that, that notion of competitive tension. Correct. And it, and it, and it brings on there. So, so about the, the education side of, of HIP, um, explain a little bit about that. Okay, so the, the program is about herbicide discovery. And herbicide discovery requires chemists, um, organic chemists. So part of the program is to have postdoctoral students from Australia or New Zealand, Australian or New Zealand citizens or residencies, to take up a two-year postdoctoral position in, in Frankfurt in Germany and be part of the discovery team. Um, so there's, there's ten, of the, 10 chemists and there's also one biochemist has been generally through the tranche. Um, and so they've been involved right in the depths of coming up with new molecules. Now, what they bring back to Australia when they come back to Australia, because you know, these are people who've just finished their, well, done their degree, gone and done a PhD. So most of them are in their you know, mid-20s. Um, and so they were probably still looking at living in Europe or somewhere else for a little while. Some have come straight back to Australia. So they're influenced of what they're going to bring back to Australia will will take a little bit more time um, to, to, to filter through and really come out what the value was. But for a lot of them, again, have come into it not necessarily from an agricultural background. So it opens their eyes to agriculture. They might have had, I'll go back to Mike and my era, everybody had an uncle or a grandfather on the farm, right? Some of these may still have that type of memory so this is reliving that and, and bringing that more to the fore of what agriculture does provide to Australia. As uh, science has progressed, there's a change happening within the discovery areas right across the board in all companies of using AI, machine learning, um, understanding our plant physiology um, and plant biochemistry to be able to target some of those initial pathways. Um, so that might lead to having smaller units available of being able to do those things based in universities and come up with some, some leads to a better term, which then they'll go and talk to the bigger companies. Um, so in the long run, these people have been at the forefront of discovery in a large company, may come back and start a small unit up in, in, a, in a university, and they may come out with a startup. So we have to watch this space. But for them, of their life experiences, um, all the reflections have been very positive. You mentioned AI, and it, it's the, um, the topic of the moment for, for everything. The notion of AI, digital, tech, digital farming technology, what sort of things are you seeing in Bayer in that world? Is that, is that touching on you yet? And, and you know, where, where do you see that going? <laughs> I'm not, probably not the right person to ask, but, I mean, we are looking at, Within herbicide development, we, we do look at whatever digital tools we can use that are going to help us um, produce better quality scientific data. And we also try to keep up with uh, 
um, any sort of digital um, advancements in agriculture as well, such as one that I can think of just now is optical spot spraying, for example, where um, just small, uh, there's a camera that identifies a weed uh, and that triggers the machine to turn the sprayer on. And so you're not spraying parts of the, the paddock that don't have weeds, you're only spraying where the weeds are and that the effect is that you're reducing the amount of herbicide that you're spraying quite considerably and I think the figure I've heard is that it's often you're often only spraying about 15% of the paddock. And to, oh, of course, it all depends on, on the weed pressure that's in that particular paddock, but we're trying to look at how Bayer can fit into that and what products we can register with those use patterns. And, I, and the other one, I think, is... Um, Someone mentioned just before about drone application, and it, it's difficult to see how that fits in certainly in broadacre um, agriculture in Australia. But that's another space that's just changing so rapidly. And some of the benefits, uh, certainly in the Asian countries, where they've gone from hand spraying to drone spraying, and sort of skipped out the the, the equipment that we use in Australia, um, they've seen tremendous benefits um, just for just for safety of the the people who are applying the products. Time for a bit of crystal ball gazing. Where do you see weed management in 20 years' time? I think weed management in 20 years' time will come more down to site-specific farming, as will all cropping. If you look at the maize and soybean industries um, in, in America, where the, the, the farming decision is made on a plant-by-plant basis, not on a paddock-by-paddock basis... Sure, plant density is a bit different between corn and wheat, but eventually we're going to be at that that scale where we can possibly do that for wheat, which means we can also identify the weeds between each wheat plant. So we can get down to specific site-specific farming. It doesn't mean that everything will be done that way, because you may do some analysis and saying there's just too many to do that. You're actually better off doing a broadacre broadcast application across the paddock. Um, but the principle would be trying to get down to the smallest unit, and that's a plant. Where do you think we're going to be in 20 years' time, Mike? Oh, wow. I've left my crystal ball at home. I'm not quite sure. <laughs> but um, I, I think we'll always be reliant on herbicides. They may not play as big a role uh, in the future, certainly as far as uh, spraying the whole paddock, as we've, we've talked about. But, yeah, I'm hoping, uh, you know, there's... It's very hard to know exactly what sort of innovation will be out there, but um, obviously digital will play a bigger role and uh, there'll be a lot more uh, information-driven decisions. And final question, and I'll probably get a one-word answer from this one, I suspect. Will we ever get rid of weeds? (laughs) You're going to get a one-word answer, yes. (laughs) No, we're not going to get rid of weeds. Um, And and, and I'll go on that, even to the AI, and this... You know, being able to visually pick out weeds from crops. If we go back in history, and I'll specifically talk about the rice industry and, and talk about um, Asia, that hand weeding was is an integral part of a small rice farm. And they used to hand weed a weed called um, Ornus barnyard grass. Onion, they eventually selected barnyard grass which actually mimicked rice and its vegetative stage. So the AIs, or you know, using just just you know the spectral di- dimensions, will again put a different type of selection pressure on the w- the plant population. 
So that's why I think weeds will be with us to stay. But we will get them to a point able to manage them a lot better and they're not, as what Mike talked about earlier, not dominating what the rotation is. The, the grower can say, right, I'm going to put in wheat this year or I'm going to put in chickpeas or I'm going to put in, uh, in canola and I know I've got my weeds under control. We always have to try and keep one step ahead of them because they'll keep a step ahead of us Correct. by the sound of it. Yeah. Yeah, brother. Well, that's all we have time for. Ken, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Ed. It was very enjoyable. And Mike, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Ed. Yeah, very, very good. And a uh, special thank you to our audience for listening. Um, make sure you tell your friends and colleagues about our podcast and keep an eye out for our future episodes as we tackle the issues of better agriculture. We'll catch you then. Thanks and bye. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Better Agriculture, brought to you by Bayer Crop Science Australia. Listen to our other episodes to meet more of the Bayer Crop Science team and hear about their groundbreaking work on solutions for Australian agriculture.